we've been talking about regrets, and we're finishing this series this morning. We were going to do it last week, but Irma came along and kind of changed our schedule. But uh, I want to talk to you about some of the regrets we have in life and, and how they affect us and how they impact us. And as you know, anybody ever had a regret before it ever happened? You, you knew it wasn't going to be good, you know. Uh, several years ago, I, I got this brilliant idea. I actually heard it from somebody else. I thought, this, this is cool. Uh, the whole idea of Leviticus, it talks about a scapegoat. You know, that uh, they would bring the, the scapegoat into the temple, and they would put the sins of the people of the goat and send it out into the wilderness. And I thought, that, that's a really good idea. I'd, I'd like to do that uh, on Easter Sunday and kind of explain how Jesus became our scapegoat, took our sins upon himself on the cross. And so I, I'm, I'm a farm boy, and so I, I know goats. And so I thought, I'll buy a goat and sell it back after, after the service. I'm thinking 50 bucks. So I go to this rancher or farmer. He's got 500 goats. I go, uh, I need a goat. He goes, the cheapest one I got is $500 for a goat? I'm going, that's crazy, a goat. So I said, I need a one Sunday goat. This is just, this, this is just, this is just for Easter. He goes, I'll tell you what, preacher, I'll, I'll loan you a goat. So here I am, I'm, I'm driving. We just, bought, we just built this new house. And Brenda had, had a kind of a minor surgery. She was recovering from that. And so I'm driving to our house holding the goat by one horn and driving with the other horn in, in my Jeep Cherokee. It was a really cool look. To, you have to kind of imagine that. And when we get to the house, uh, Brenda and Mike is pretty small. He's there visiting us. And uh, they're in the garage. And I'm letting the goat eat some weeds. That's what goats do. And uh, basically, the phone rings. And I tell Brenda, Brenda, hold the goat by this horn while I go and get the phone. I'm on the phone and I hear this sad little voice going, Steve, help. So I go run out in the garage and Brenda's over in the corner of the garage in a heap and the goat is gone. Now, the goat's $500, but I was really concerned about Brenda. So I'm you know, trying to figure it. And, and she, was, she was okay. She was fine. A little shook up, but fine. I found the goat and, uh, and, and I was starting to think, this was not my finest moment when I thought about this. And so basically, I, I decided, okay, I'm going to put the goat in the garage tonight and made a bed for the goat. And it was fine, except he wouldn't, he just kept making all kinds of noise unless I was out there. So I spent half of the night before Easter with a goat in my garage. And then this is the age of three-piece suits. So I'm driving on the interstate in a three-piece suit, in a Jeep Grand Cherokee, holding a goat by one horn. You don't see that every day, driving down a highway, you know. Uh, the reason Brenda went across the garage is she didn't listen, and she grabbed with two horns. And their natural instinct is to butt you when you do that. That's how she ended up in a heap on the side of the garage. So I, I get, uh, you know, I'm thinking, I'm never going to forget this Easter Sunday, you know. It, it's, but it was kind of a regretful one. We did that here in 2012, but I was smart enough to get Gator to bring his goat, and I didn't have to worry about it. So that, that kind of worked out a, lot, a whole lot better. But all of us have had some experiences and some regrets, and some of them looking back, they're kind of funny, you know. But there's some of our regrets, when we look back at them, they're pretty sad, and they make us sad. And uh, they, they hurt our hearts. You know, we have regrets 
of situations of action, things that we did and things that we said that we, we wish we could undo and unsay. Uh, Brent's out of town this weekend. He and Lauren, for a weekend, they decided that we were in charge of the kids. And uh, last night, I was a little bit of a grumpy grandpa or poppy, and I, I felt bad about that. You know, I, I really did. You know, you wish that you were always going to do it exactly the way you intended to. Anybody ever done it differently than you intended? You know, that's, that's kind of... So those are, those are regrets of action. There's also regrets of inaction, where we uh, wish we had said something, we wish we had called someone, we wish we had reached out to them. And then there's those regrets of things that happened to us. And sometimes those are the most painful ones because we don't really control them. You know, the events that take place in our lives that we have no control over, but somehow those events keep muddying up our lives and, and keep causing us pain and, and, and difficulty. There's an amazing promise in Ecclesiastes that Solomon writes. It says, I know that there's nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they, while they live. That's a good idea. That everyone may eat, drink, and find satisfaction in all of his toil. This is the gift of God. According to Solomon, the gift of God is this, to find happiness, to find ways to help others, to have enough to live on, and to enjoy what you do, to enjoy your vocation. And yet, Steve Buckman says, Mark Buckman says, that most of us are stuck in our lives, and we don't live out any of that promise in our lives. Uh, We're not happy. We have no systematic way of helping people. We're not even sure we want to help people. You know, we're kind of looking at me, you know. Uh, we struggle financially, and we always seem to be in trouble, and we don't really love our job. We're thinking about changing jobs or retiring or, or whatever, you know. And the result is there's not a whole lot of peace and satisfaction in our lives. And far too many of us have decided that this intimate walk with Jesus, these people that have this great relationship with God, that's for them, but it's not for me because I don't really know how to do that. And I don't know how to make that happen. I believe the primary reason that many of us are living below the level that God intends for us is simply the fact that we have some unresolved sin and regret in our life that we've never really dealt with. We've been talking about this now for several weeks. You remember the healing begins when we recognize we have regrets. We admit we have them. And then we have to take those regrets and, and give them to God and, and place them in his hands. And so he can have them. We release them to him. And when we release our regrets to God, he does an amazing thing. He redeems those regrets. We said that God doesn't waste any of our pain. He brings healing to our lives. In the book of Deuteronomy, it's an Old Testament book, fifth chapter, Moses has the classic example of people who are stuck. Remember, he got out of Egypt. He's got all these Israelites, and they're supposed to go to the promised land, but they're afraid of the giants, and so they're kind of wandering in a circle. A trip that should have taken about a week or two weeks at the most. They've been wandering around for 40 years in the wilderness, you know. And the reason they're wandering around is because he didn't have enough faith to trust God. And now it's, it's come to the point where most of that generation has died off. Uh, in first service this morning, we had uh, Laura 
Berquist with us. And uh, is that right, Laura? Lori Berquist. And she was looking for people that she knew. So she was looking for old folks. If she talked to you guys, she was looking for old folks. I'm sorry. Uh, because most people didn't know her, you know, because she was here many, many years ago, even though Morris Berkowitz was one of the greatest pastors we've had in the Church of God. Great, great man. But it's been a while. And it's been a while for these people in the wilderness. And so most of them are gone. In fact, there's only three left. Moses, uh, who doesn't get to go to the promised land, Caleb, and Joshua. Everybody else is the next generation coming along. And Moses begins to share with this generation what we now call the Ten Commandments. And you know the Ten Commandments. We fight about whether they should be in schools or not. You could be in your heart whether they're in a school or not, right? But there's three verses in, the, in the, one of those commandments that kind of throw us a little bit. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in the heaven above or the earth beneath or the water below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, doesn't that sound a little harsh to you? That, okay, I'm going to punish you to the third and fourth generation for the sins of your great-grandfather, your great-great-grandfather, of those who hate me. That's like if, if my son Jeff, when he turned 16, if I said to him, Jeff, I'm sorry, you can't drive a car because your great-great-grandfather was reckless when he drove. He had a lot of accidents, and so because of that, you can't drive. Now, I might have tried that with Brent, but Jeff was a really good driver. <laughs> but it doesn't seem fair, but that's not what God is saying in these verses. At the risk of losing you, uh, let me share that this is an example of Hebrew parallelism. In first, let me give you an example of that. In 1 Samuel 18, 7 through 8, they give you numerical parallelism. It goes like this. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. Now, let me bring that up to a, a modern time. It'd be like saying Florida Gator football is bad for three years and Kentucky football has been bad for 31 years. Yeah, watch the game. Every lousy minute of it, every moment of it, you know. Uh, this, this helps us understand Deuteronomy 5 and what he's really saying. It's a numerical parallel that goes like this. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their fathers, the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But notice the parallel. But sharing love a thousand, actually it could be translated thousands of generations of those who love me. God is ready to punish sin. But that's not what he really wants to do. His heart longs to love us. For a thousand generations, that's his heart. I will punish the sin for the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. He's not saying I'm going to punish innocent people. He goes, if you hate me, I will punish you. 
In other words, if the children of the parents who refuse to obey me also don't obey me, then I will be forced to punish them to the third and fourth generation. But notice the largest numerical parallel in the entire Bible is this verse. I'll punish them to the third or fourth generation, but if they love me, I'll love them for a thousand generations. That's the depth and the width width of God's love. But it's a warning about generational sin. What's generational sin? Most of us are aware that unresolved issues of our parents and grandparents often bleed into our lives and to our generation and the next generation. And this generational sin continues until someone has enough courage to say, enough. This pattern that doesn't work in our family has to stop. I will confess my regrets and my sin. I will give it to God and release it to God. I will allow him to redeem my past. If you had parents that had abusive rage, it is highly probable that you will also have trouble controlling your rage. The same is true for divorce. It's true for sexual addiction. It's true for abuse. If your parents did it, you're much more likely to do it. How often have I heard, I will never be like my parents or my grandparents. And then we find ourselves just like them, doing the exact same thing. I do, uh, over the years, I've done a lot of work with alcoholics. And alcoholism is one of those things that is a generational thing. It runs in families. It's very predominant in families. If your parent was an alcoholic, if you drink, you're 50% more likely, 50% more likely to become an alcoholic. And this pattern of repeated sin and regret continues for generation to generation until someone has the courage to stand up and pay the price. Some of you in this room this morning are struggling with deeply entrenched patterns of sin and behavior in your life. You also have children. And so you're going to have to decide which are you going to love the most, this dysfunctional pattern of behavior in your family or your children. Too many try to manage their regrets and their sin by hiding it from their children. It never works. It never works. Someone must have the courage to stand up to the pain and suffering and the guilt and say, my regret stops now. I will do whatever it takes. I will confess to God. I will go to an accountability group. I will see a Christian counselor and figure out what in the world's going on in my family. It stops here. It stops in my generation. Someone has to make that conscious choice. God has not condemned any of us to suffer the sins and regrets of past generations. He'll wait a thousand generations for us to love him. That's God's heart. That's how deep his love is 
for us. If you're dealing with generational sin in your family, today is your day to say no more. I'm done. God has not ordained you to suffer the same fate of your parents or grandparents or great-grandparents. He'll wait a thousand generations to show you his love. I find a lot of people who are kind of like one of my favorite theologians, Charlie Brown. There's a skit where, where Linus is talking to Charlie Brown. He says, Charlie Brown, you know, I probably shouldn't be worrying about tomorrow. I just want to live in today. And Charlie Brown says, no, 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 no. That's giving up. I'm still trying to get yesterday to change. And I meet a lot of people like Charlie Brown who are still hoping somehow the pain and the disappointment and the hurt in my life that happened yesterday will somehow just change. It won't. It can be redeemed. It can be changed in your heart, but it's there. Or maybe you're still mourning the loss of some spiritual giant in your life, and you said, man, if, if grandma was still here, if my dad was still here, uh, I could live this life. I could be the kind of person I'm supposed to be. Whatever is in your past that's blocking you from the amazing promise God has for your future, let it go. Let it go. Stake your claim on this amazing promise. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Say that with me. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In other words, God wants you to succeed. He wants you to thrive. He wants you to experience victory not only in your life, He wants it in the life of your kids and your grandkids and the great-grandkids you haven't even thought about yet. He wants all of that for you. A couple of weeks we talked about what does it look like when, when God takes our regrets and our pain and redeems it for his purpose. It's an amazing thing to see. God doesn't waste our pain if we give it to him. I have a friend who's experienced some generational pain in her life. Uh, If you just kind of heard her story without knowing her story, you'd say, well, the odds are all stacked against her. Another person of brokenness and pain and abuse. But she had the courage enough to say enough. God can change this. And God says, I am able not only to change it, I can redeem your life and redeem your pain. And I'm going to ask my friend Jessica Birch to come at this time. And we even have a little stool to sit on over here. It's kind of cool. Now, you can't be around Jessica very long without realizing her passion and enthusiasm. She's on the praise team. Man, she's got her hand up and her eyes closed. And she's in love with Jesus. And it's, it's a really neat thing to say. Uh, she's also has quite a remarkable story. All of us have a story, but hers is, is quite a remarkable story. Uh, she's not only a beautiful girl, but she was valedictorian of her high school class. That impresses me. I mean, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty cool, you know, uh, and she was a star basketball player. That's pretty cool, too, because I wasn't that either, and, and yet her life has known a lot of brokenness and hurt 
and pain. And Jessica, as, as we look at you, you know, I was, I was thinking, okay, she's Asian, maybe she's Filipino. Uh, just what are you? <laughs> There's a reason I ask this question later. Yeah, um, I used to just identify as biracial. You know, I thought it was just white and black and just... It was that easy, but I actually did some research before this on ethnicity, and uh, I found a website that had a bunch of different terms, and um, I would say just multiracial. It's a term that's around now, and uh, I, I, I don't identify with any one race, just specifically. My mother is Caucasian, um, but she has some German in her, you know, and then my biological father was lighter-skinned, um, African-American male. So I think that he had some uh, Native American in there. And uh, so, you know, I, I hope to get a DNA test, I'm saying this, uh, to figure out what all is in my blood one of these days. Um, I know those are around and, you know, science has made it really neat to where we can actually figure out what we're made of. Yeah, probably most of us would be surprised that DNA test we, we take it. Okay. So tell me a little bit about your childhood up to middle school. What was yeah. um, so... My mom was in just an abusive relationship before she had me uh, for a couple of years, and I was born in 85, um, and then my sister, uh, Andrew, was born in 88. Um, so during that time, uh, you know, I don't and couldn't fathom the abuse my mom was going through. I don't remember too much of my childhood, but what I um, do remember uh, um, came to me at three whenever she left him. It was an, an altercation that... Um, ended up being a reoccurring nightmare that I had, and I didn't realize it was something true that happened until I asked my mom about it years later. Um, so whenever, right shortly after my sister was born and I was three, uh, we ended up leaving him for good and uh, moved to just a smaller town, and, or a bigger town, and uh, um, you know, my mom tried to make it just as a single, single mother with the two of us, and she did her best. And uh, I was just a really quiet child. I do remember that, um, just shutting out a lot of the world and what was going on around me. Uh, my mom got remarried in 92. She worked at a, a magazine publishing company and met my stepdad, uh, Chris, who has never been a stepdad to me. I use, it's weird to say that, even to call him that, but um, he's been my, my father. Um, I said good, good father. Um, he has been nothing but showered us with love and never saw our color, never saw, you know, my mom's uh, uh, past, uh, just loved us for who we are. Um, we moved to Oilton, which is a really small town where I ended up graduating from and when I started playing basketball and, and all of that. And, um, you know, there, you know, uh, it, it was it was a change. My parents had to go to work into the big city, Tulsa, which was an hour away. So I grew up. Um, my 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 father, Chris, uh, who raised me, taught me the discipline, uh, the um, how to take care of a house, how to manage a household and clean and do all the things I needed to do um, for while they were away. Uh, he was you know grooming me for for what was to come. And uh, so while they were gone, you know, 6 a.m. until 5 or 6 at night, I would take care of my sister, Andrea, and then they also had another daughter, my half-sister, Elsa. Um, let, let me interrupt yeah. you here just for a second, just to give you an example of, of when she says she takes care of things. She called me a, a week or so ago and said that the dryer at the hiding place isn't working. 
I said, well, well, we'll try and we'll try and find one. And she called me back. She goes, no, I Googled it. I found out it's probably a belt. So I took it apart and I'm getting the belt. And she fixed the dryer. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. So, I, yeah, I, poof, I do a lot of that. I try to be handy. And, uh, you know, I, I just was very independent, like I said, as a kid, just very quiet and just kind of walked around and I had to take care of, of my sisters and just make sure they were safe. Um, it was uh, interesting. My sister had a lot more of the anger than I had that came from my biological father. Um, so it was a lot to try to handle her. And then my other sister was 10 years younger than me um, and try to keep everybody you know, in line and have the house ready for whenever my parents came. So a lot of expectation, but you know, very good. Okay. And the reason I, I talked about your ethnicity, that's hard to say, uh, you were sharing with me that during your middle school years and your high school years, you went through some prejudice and some bullying. What was that like for you, and how did you get through that? Um, it was, uh, I didn't start remembering things until we really moved to Oilton. Um, like I said, I shut out a lot of what was happening prior um, in my family, my grandparents uh, had prejudices I didn't really realize. They would say things to me or criticize in the nicest way they could and, you know, had names uh, that, you know, they just knew and, and, and said, you know, to me or to my parents. And my parents shut them down really quick and said, you know, that wasn't something we were going to have or we would leave the house. Um, so that happened. And then with friends that came later and... Uh, it's, it's innocent, but it hurts, and it's offensive uh, as well. And uh, during my, uh, in between my eighth and ninth grade year, uh, you know, I got saved and really tried to set myself apart um, from everything that was going on. I was really confused in my seventh and eighth grade year, just trying to fit in with everybody. And uh, it was a new school and just a new place, and there weren't very many. There's nobody like me. There's a couple of African-American um, boys that were in high school, but, you know, they didn't, you know, it, it, it was just like playing, you know, just like the name Oreo or something like that. Like, it was just, it was offensive, but, you know, just um, is what it is. And I played it up. I, you know, gave them Oreos on their desk one day, you know, it's just, it, it was something I had to set aside and I couldn't take, I couldn't take it to, take it completely to heart. And I had, you know, my friends by me who, who knew who I was and, and didn't see that. So, um, all the way through high school, you know, it got easier as people graduated and as I got older and, and grew into myself, I'm very much a tomboy and playing ball and um, I had to feel comfortable with who I was, so. Okay. And now, uh, in recent years, God's been working in your family and even in family you didn't know you had and uh, he's kind of demonstrated his grace to you in, in several ways. Why don't you just kind of share a couple of those stories? Yeah. Um, so I'll, going into life after high school, you don't know what it will really bring, but I feel that God had his hand on me, you know, after um, accepting him my freshman year. And uh, I said I had nightmares whenever I was younger, and I did. And I asked God to take all my dreams away uh, because I did not want to struggle anymore with the evil spirits that that can bring and just the stuff it can bring around you. So um, I stopped dreaming for a long time, and after I got saved, I, I started dreaming a little bit again about the future I would have um, with my kids and my husband. And um, I, I truly uh, know that God 
had his hand on me from that point, leading me to Mid-America and into Andrew, um, so I could uh, find a husband suitable for me um, who would be with me for life and not treat me um, the way my family had been treating, treated. Um, so that is one thing. I, I experienced bullying in, in college as well um, from the African-American side this time. Um, so my roommates. Uh, so, you know, it happens um, all around you. And Andrew and I even uh, had a bit when we applied to a church, you know, you don't realize who's there and, and, and in places. And so interracial marriage was something that we um, had to fight for in our marriage and, um, and be turned down, you know, with, with applying to a couple of places. Um, so, but God redeemed that in me and, um, and, uh, helped me just be strong in, in who I was and in who I was becoming. Um, with my, mom and and my father I, I felt like I didn't know my mom uh the way I wanted to I felt like she had grudges and just was holding on to so much and I didn't realize how much it was um she had given up a uh, son for adoption before she had me a couple of years before she had me um you know after her and my biological father first got together and the thing is is my grand my grandma also did the same thing um, so whenever my mom was 30, I remember just an uncle coming around that we didn't really know or realize who he was. And my, her mom had done the exact same thing, given up a son for adoption. Nobody spoke of it. It was a family secret that, you know, the uncle or my uncle and aunt kept. And, you know, just nothing really came of that, though. Uh, you know, he was in and out. And um, to know it happened to me, so to know that that happened to me, and at 30, in my 30s, to find out I had a brother, um, and the weight that was lifted because I knew just in my heart and my soul that there was somebody out there, um, somebody else, um, and I would ask my mom, you know, is there an older brother? There's there's 10 of us that we know of, um, not including my half siblings, um, but. There's, there's 10 of us, and so whenever another one comes around, you're just kind of like, oh, okay, you know, there's, there's another one. Um, but Israel was different because he's my full brother, and um, my, my mom just kept it a secret as well as my rest of my family that knew, and it's just unspoken. Um, so to find him and the release that's come from that, from my family, uh, the weight that's been lifted um, for the truth being told and uh, for my mom just accepting that and knowing that she's worthy of being called a mom. I think that was a lot because she called me sister for a long time. I said, I am not your sister. You know, you are my mother and you protected me and, and took care of me. And um, so it was, it's been such a process. This has only been a year, not even a year. November, it'll be a year since we, he found us. Um, and he has the name Israel Emmanuel, <laughs> and uh, what a name. Um, he got his adoption papers back from the state of Oklahoma and had my biological father's name. He's just like, I do not even know what that name is or relate to it at all, and I praise God for that because that is not who he is or who he is intended to be. Um, so, you know, just God's redeeming love and grace is continually flowing, uh, you know, in us and through us. And he's making all things just new and uh, helping the connection to come. Because Israel didn't have any connection um, when he was given up for adoption. You know, you think you're giving him to great people. But um, 
sometimes they're just not great people. And my biological father was also given up for adoption, right? <laughs> Into actually pastors' families. And they were not great situations for them to be in. And so they grew up in a life of turmoil and that created a lot of anger in them and they don't know how to show love other than to show abuse. Um, and Israel didn't want to be that way and he knew that. He knew that that just wasn't him or what he needed. And so he's working really hard to get over the anger that's there and um, you know, not really understanding where that's coming from but really trying to grasp hold of um, love and connection. Um, to people, to his boys, and now to our family. So we're able to show that. Well, you know, uh, Jessica, I think in this community, we have a lot of people that are in your same situation in terms of their family. And, uh, and even if it's not an interracial family, we have a lot of uh, families have been broken by divorce and by different things in their lives. And so you found some peace and joy and uh, redemption in Christ what would you say to our families that are going through that same struggle? Um, yeah, yeah. Just take a deep breath. <laughs> you know, God gave us our our breath, and he made us. And um, I had no control over what color I am, you know, how many freckles I have, uh, how, what my hair does on a daily basis. <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's something that... Um, like Pastor was talking about, comes from past generations, and we don't have to hold on to that. Um, it's something that can be released from us, and we can break those chains um, yeah. that have been given and um, handed down to us, and to have that hope that um, God is with us and is in closets when you're stuck in them, you know, in the dark whenever you're there um, and not really knowing what's going on around you. Um, but there's always that still small voice that is taking care of you and trying to speak to you and guide you. Um, and so just with every breath, know that it's a new starting point because it was given from the creator who made you just the way you are. And we're just vessels here on this earth um, to do his work and uh, to uh, just continue on this life that he has for us and the goodness that is there. Amen. Yeah. Jessica, we are so glad you're here. Oh, you're going to yeah. read I'm going to read my verse, yeah. Okay, I, I forgot. No, she you're okay. So, um, so that's for a lot of you who have experienced what I've experienced, but some of you haven't and um, don't really understand the brokenness and maybe your families, you come from a great family or maybe there's just like one or two little blemishes that are there, but um, there's always somebody to help and um, can always look and seek those helpers and um, I urge you to be one of those people uh, no matter who you are so um, I found a verse um, verses a passage out of Romans uh, 15 1 through 13 and I just want to read it to encourage you all to um, to walk in the spirit and to be the help those of us who are strong and able in faith need to step in and lend a hand to those who falter and not just do what is most convenient for us. Strength is for service, not status. Each one of us needs to look after the good of the people around us, asking ourselves, how can I help? That's exactly what Jesus did. He didn't make it easy for himself by avoiding people's troubles, but waded right in and helped out. I took on the troubles of the trouble, is the way scripture puts it. 
Even if it was written in scripture long ago, you can be sure it's written for us. God wants the combination of his steady, constant calling and warm personal counsel in scripture to come characterize us, keeping us alert for whatever he will do next. Our dependability, steady, and warmly and warmly personal God develop maturity in you so that you get along with each other as well as Jesus gets along with us all. We'll be a choir, not, o- not our voices only, but our very lives singing in harmony in a studying anthem to the God and Father of our Master Jesus. So reach out and welcome one another God's glory. Jesus did it. Now you can do it. Jesus, staying true to God's promises, reached out in a special way to the Jewish insiders so that the old ancestral promises would come true for them. As a result, the non-Jewish outsiders have been able to experience... Whoop, you switched on me. Oh. Um, gee, okay. Reached out in a special way to the Jewish insiders so that the old ancestral promises would come true for them. As a result, the non-Jewish outsiders have been able to experience mercy and to show appreciation to God. Just think of the scriptures that will come come true when we do. For instance, then I'll join the outsiders in a hymn sing. I'll sing your name. And this one, outsiders and insiders rejoice together. And again, people of all nations celebrate God, all colors and races Give hearty praise. And Isaiah's word. There's the root of our ancestor Jesse breaking through the earth and growing tree tall. Tall enough for anyone everywhere to see and take hope. Oh, may the God of green hope fill you up with joy. Fill you up with peace so that your believing lives filled with the life-giving energy of the Holy Spirit will brim over with hope. Amen. Jessica, thank you for sharing your story. It's a great story, and we believe God's not done with it yet. And we're so glad you guys are here. So let's welcome her. The Bible talks a lot about a third day. Uh, when Esther was going to go before the king, she asked them to pray for three days. Uh, In Hosea, it tells us there's two days, and then on the third day, uh, two days he will revive us, and after three days he will restore us that we might live in his presence. And all these texts, there's a bunch of them, leads to this amazing text in 1 Corinthians 15.3. For what I received... I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to Scriptures. The third day is God's day. It's the believer's day. And the third day is when you can break those bonds that Jessica was talking about when we say, God, enough. I give you my life. And maybe this morning it's your third day. You've been battling some stuff in your family for a long time, maybe in your own personal walk, and you've allowed that to kind of beat you down and keep you from being the man or woman of God that God wants you to be. He can change all that today on this third day. So would you bow your heads with me for a moment? Lord, today there are some folks that need to say enough. 
You know, I've, all the outside looks good, but on the inside, I'm broken. I'm hurting. I need your healing. I need your forgiveness. I need your redemption. My family needs your redemption. Lord, today, there's some parents that love their kids so much, and, and they want to break those chains that keep them from being what you want them to be. And so today, Lord, uh, if there might be some folks that their response is that they need to come and pray at the altar and say, God, here I am. I, I, I leave this with you. Or maybe just right where they are to say, God, today, this is the day that I say enough. And that you say, welcome to my family. So whatever needs to happen this morning, Lord, we pray that you would do it in these next couple of moments. In Christ's name, amen.